Uh, You can turn over to Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Matthew chapter 8, we find ourselves back in the wonderful gospel of Matthew. And uh, uh, we've been going through the gospel of Matthew now for uh, today would be the 73rd Sunday, not straight, obviously, but the 73rd message so far in Matthew. And you say, well, how long are you going to take? I don't know. Um, this morning's message went this morning as I was going over it from one message to two. <laughs> so uh, we're only going to share half of, of what you were supposed to get this morning because I thought we got the video, we got some other things, and I've always been accused of unloading too much information. So we're going to uh, pull back a little bit and take our time and go through the text appropriately this morning. But turn over to Matthew chapter 8. And I just want to read for us the text that's before us the next couple Sundays. Matthew chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 16. Matthew 8, beginning in verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. One thing we want to look at this morning is, um, this was kind of, what I'm going to share this morning was the introduction to the message this morning. So you can, you can kind of uh, discern whether I made the right call in cutting this message in half or not. I think I did. So, um, but as we look at those first couple verses there, Uh, One thing that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew as we've gone through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, we continually see uh, evidences of Christ being the Messiah, being deity, being God in human flesh. We see that over and over and over again. And one thing I want to look at this morning is, is there healing in the atonement? You may say, well, that sounds kind of weird. What do you mean by that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Because, unfortunately, a lot of false teachers, a lot of phony healers and everything today have used the verses that we're going to look at today, not only in Matthew, but also in Isaiah. And they've used them as a club to beat Christians who are sick or who um, have an ailment or something like that, saying that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be sick and so forth. So we're going to look at de- in detail about this this morning. So we can walk away saying, okay... Is there healing in the atonement or not? Is that a legitimate call? Uh, what kind of healing is it? Notice I didn't define that. I just said healing. There's different kinds of healing. So we're going to talk about that. But one thing that as we begin this section of uh, Matthew in chapter, or verse 16, chapter 8, we're going to see that next week, basically, is there's going to be three people we're going to look at, three men who came to Christ willfully, and yet Christ turned to each one of them, basically, and in a nutshell, 
kind of rejected them. And we're going to look at that in, in more detail next week. But this morning, the first thing that we want to focus in on here is, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen a consistent rejection of Christ. We want to look at that rejection of Christ. What makes Christ so rejectable by people? I mean, for us believers here this morning, we may look at that and say, you know what, it's incredible that anybody would continue to reject the love and the grace and the wholeness and the forgiveness and the lordship of Christ. It's beyond our understanding that people continue to reject his incomparable, matchless graciousness, the the love that he has of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. We don't understand that. The one who died for them. And as much as they reject him in his time, they still reject him today. We watched a video last Wednesday night, a way the master video called Average Joe. And it's about a half hour video and we just did it because we're, we're getting back into a study on, on uh, in a book on, on, on Wednesdays, but this was kind of like in between. So we had some dinner together as a care group. And by the way, our care groups meet on Wednesday nights and Friday nights. And uh, we encourage all of us to be part of one of those two care groups. And if you can't be part of one of those, tell us and we'll start another one. Okay, that's how committed we are to our care groups. We believe that's really where the ministry takes place. If you think coming to church on Sunday and sitting here and hearing somebody talk and preach, you know, that's going to help you, I hope. But that's not going to do it. You've got to be in the Word throughout the week. And part of that being in the Word is being in the Word with other believers. Okay, so we're very sold out to our, our care groups that meet throughout the week. But having said that, we watched this video. And... Uh, Part of the, the the video was, I think it was Kirk Cameron or Ray Comfort interviewing somebody, an atheist on the street. And they gave the illustration and they were saying, well, we just don't believe that the world was created. We believe it evolved and everything. And he goes, well, why do you believe that? And so he gave this illustration. Well, there's a building. Do you think that there was a builder? Yes. Okay. There's a painting. Do you think that there's a painting or a painter? Yes. And he asked this question. He goes, why when it, you look at creation, you look at everything around When you say, is there a creator, you say, no, (laughs) there can't be. It's impossible. And most atheists would even deny that God exists altogether, even though there's evidence all throughout the world that he exists. Well, we see the same thing here with Christ. We see him doing works, doing uh, healings and various things throughout his ministry, throughout his life that really approved who he was. They gave him credentials. Of, of being the Son of God, of being the Savior of the world. And sometimes it's hard to believe that people would reject that, especially when they have all the information. And today we say, well, you know, I mean, I could see where people reject Christ. Can you imagine walking with Christ and still rejecting Him? Being right there in His presence and still rejecting Him? See, the, the proof of his existence as God in human flesh is far beyond any contradiction you'll ever find. You look at his words, you look at his works, you look at his death, his resurrection, they all unmistakably speak of the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. In spite of that, in spite of all that evidence, Scripture records that people rejected the evidence and they refused to acknowledge Jesus 
Christ as Lord. John 1, 1, or John 1, 11 says this, that he came onto his own and his own received him what? Not. His own people didn't even receive him. And that includes, by the way, maybe members of his own family. Yes, Jesus had other family. In John 5.40, it says, And you will not come unto me that you might have life. In Luke chapter 19, verse 14, shortly before his crucifixion, people cried out and they said with a vengeance, We will not have this man to reign over us. See, those statements go directly against all the evidence, all the affirmations of people and, and what they, the affirmations that they made when they were confronted face-to-face with Christ. Even though they rejected Him there, when they met Him face-to-face, when they saw what He did, they were truly amazed. Beyond even words sometimes. See, it comes down to an issue of someone else controlling your life. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. It comes down to being able to yield up that control of who you are and who you want to be and what you want to do to someone else. It it, it comes down to being able to bow your knee at the cross and saying, Lord, you know what? It's not about me anymore. It's all about you. You do what you want with my life. You, You take me where you want me to be. You do with me whatever you want. See, that's that's the kind of... Selling out that Jesus requires that unfortunately when people teach the gospel and people preach the gospel and you share the gospel with your friends, sometimes somehow we leave that part out. You know, we get through the four spiritual laws fine. God has a, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I mean, you'd have to be a complete moron to say, well, I'm going to reject that. I mean, what is there to reject? Don't you want to go to heaven? And see, and that's how sometimes we share the gospel. And we forget the truth that Jesus taught a lot of times when he shared the gospel, the good news with people, the part about denying yourself. The part about taking up your cross. The part about dying to self on a daily basis. Those are hard things to hear. See, but unfortunately, because we have egos and because we want to build ourselves up and we want to make ourselves out to be some big evangelist and and have a big church and, and just feel good about ourselves, and we go out and rather than share the hard message of the true gospel with people, we water it down with something like, you know, we'll just pray this prayer. And, you know, it's we call it the sinner's prayer. And we say, you know, just admit you're a sinner and, and then, you know, just say you believe in Jesus. And, hey, welcome to the family. God bless you. Next. Well, there's people that Jesus rejects. They come to him and he flat out rejected them. And that's what we're going to look at. But secondly, not only is there this built-in rejection of Christ in the heart of mankind, and it's because of sin, it's because of pride, it's, it's an issue that we don't come to Christ with a broken spirit, as the Beatitudes tell us. We don't come to him with a Beatitude attitude saying, Lord, I am undone, I am worthless, I am nothing. You know what? I need your salvation. There's nothing else I can do except cry out to you. See, that's the kind of brokenness that Jesus will answer. When you come there kind of saying, hey, you know what? Uh, yeah, this Jesus thing looks pretty cool. I'm just going to add him to my already busy, crazy life. 
and just kind of put him on top so I got all the bases covered, that doesn't cut it. That's not going to get you to heaven. Well, let's look at some of these responses to Christ. First of all, you see the rejection there, but let's look at the responses because it's really, the world is almost like a, a judge in a court who's heard an open and shut case. Have you ever seen this in our legal system? Sometimes the, the, the case is open and shut. The guy's guilty of sin. <laughs> Pardon the pun. And what's the judge do? He rules in some weird way that's just the opposite of what's expected. There's piles of evidence there to convict somebody. And the judge just says, well, now we're going to turn this over and then we're going to, you know, the guy's guilty. Or the guy's not guilty, he's off. He's acquitted, whatever. It's amazing. Well, that's what the world does with all the facts that they see with Christ. See, one of the first things, and I have a chart there, I think, in your little outline, and you can just kind of look these up. We're just going to fly through them. But the first one that the world was confronted with was Jesus' authority. The words that Jesus spoke were absolutely unique. It wasn't the same old preacher up there, you know, flapping his lips. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority. And you remember when we went through that section, we talked about how the Pharisees and the scribes, they would get up in their robes and they would teach. And basically they would say, you heard the, the forefathers say this. And they would quote, you know, other teachers. And everybody would sit there and go, wow, aren't they eloquent with the way they talk? Boy, look at the way they're dressed. They just look respectable. Jesus didn't quote anybody. He didn't have to. He was God. He was the living word. And it says that people were astonished at his teaching. In other words, they were taken back. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. Because he taught them as one having authority. They weren't used to that. Just like we're not used to that today. We have a lot of people that can get up and, you know, wax eloquently with words and write books and do all sorts of things. But where's their authority? Is it in themselves? Or is it in God's Word? Christ's authority was seen by all. And they were astonished. Secondly, His works. If you just look at the, the works that Jesus did in His life, I mean, just kind of put them in a little box and look at them. You would say, nobody can do this who's human. This guy had to be. There's something different about him. He had to be divine. John 7.46 says, Never a man spoke like this man. Never. The blind man in John 9, he said this to his the people who were going to basically... Uh, were upset with him. He said, why here is a marvelous thing. You not know, you know not where he is, and yet he has opened my eyes. If this man were not of God, he couldn't do anything. They were saying, well, who did? He goes, I don't know. But he goes, obviously, he healed me. He opened my eyes. The works of Christ are undeniably divine when you look at them. Thirdly, his wisdom. 
I mean, it was really superhuman. I mean, wouldn't you like more wisdom in your life? I mean, sometimes, you know, I do the stupidest things. I make the stupidest decisions. And sometimes it's like, God, why don't I just cry out to you before I make the decision for your wisdom? Well, the wisdom of Jesus was superhuman because he was divine. In Matthew 22, verses 17 to 22, you remember the, the Herodians, who were the, basically the political party that supported the rule of Rome in Jesus' day, they came up to him with a coin. You remember that? And they thought, okay, we're going to trick this guy. We're going to ask him a question. And they said, Jesus, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Catch, catchy question there, right? And Jesus said this, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God, what? The things that are God's. And then it goes on, it says, When they heard these words, what did they do? They marveled. See, they, they thought they had him. They thought they had him cornered. And Christ comes right back and just, oh, <laughs> nothing. Boom, gives them an answer. And they just go, wow. Who would have thought of that? His wisdom was superhuman. Fourthly, his purity was undeniable. He challenged the Pharisees in John 8, saying, which of you convicts me of sin? He stood boldly before, which one? Point it out. Where's the sin? They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Because he was absolutely 100% pure. See, if Christ wasn't pure, if Christ wasn't sinless, then he's no Christ at all. He's just a man like you and I. But the Bible says that, no, he, he lived a life of perfection. He lived a life of sinlessness. Was he tempted? Yes, he was. In all ways, just as we are tempted. But he didn't yield to sin. Fifth thing about Christ that people saw was his truthfulness. It was beyond question. In John 8, 46, he asked this question. He said, if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He asked them, hey, I, aren't I speaking the truth? They didn't say, oh, no, 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 you're not. They didn't argue with him because they knew it was the truth. They just chose not to believe it. Another area in Christ's life that you see his deity is his power. Nothing like the power of Christ. Matter of fact, it, it fascinated people. In Luke 8, verse 25, the disciple says, What manner of man is this? In other words, who is this guy? Who could do these kind of things? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey. See, it's one thing to command the wind and the water. I mean, I could walk outside and say, hey, you know what? Rain. I could say that all day. It's not going to listen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But it says, when he commanded the winds and the water, what? They obeyed him. I mean, you talk about power. That'd be kind of a cool power to have, wouldn't it? I was telling somebody in the coffee shop the other day, I said, hey, you know what? It's been beautiful weather. Hasn't it been beautiful? It's just been gorgeous. Oh, yeah, you know, we need the rain. I said, well, yeah, you're right. We do. We need it drastically. I said, maybe God will bless us with rain at night and sun during the day. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> maybe some of you work at night and you're going, no, no, I don't want that. But who knows? He had the power to command that. 
and his provision. I mean, remember the account in John 6 when he provided food for the multitude and they showed up the next day and Jesus told them, you know, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. (laughs) In other words, you're not coming back because you think I'm the son of God. You're coming back to get more food. See, sometimes that was kind of a consumer-driven group of people during Jesus' time. They even had them then. And the church is full of them today. Well, what can Jesus do for me? Can he make my marriage better? Can he make my finances better? Can he, you know, help my kids behave? Can he help me with a job? What's he going to provide for me? And that's the only thing they care about. Well, Christ truly provided miraculously for people. And some of them came to him just because of that. He also healed, and we're going to talk about that in depth this morning. He healed the sicknesses of many people. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 8, it says, When the multitude saw the healing of the paralytic, they marveled. Once again, they're astonished. They're blown away. And what they do, they glorified God who had given such power unto men. They they were just blown away that that God, Christ, could do something like this. We talk about His love. We talk about His love being amazing amazing, and truly it is. You remember the story in John 11 when Jesus was called to the tomb of graveside of Lazarus, basically. Was his friend, and uh, we find him there groaning and weeping. And those who stood there said, "Behold, how he loved him." They saw Jesus weep as he lost his friend. We're going to look at why he was weeping in a little in a little bit here in the message. But also his power over the demonic world. Even here this morning, we see where Jesus cast out demons. He healed sick. Matthew 9, 33 says, The multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. In other words, this is, this is like it's never before. It's kind of like what's going to happen on Tuesday with the inauguration of our new president. And I pray that, you know, whether you're Republican, Democrat, whatever, you're praying for that man, you're praying for his family, you're praying that somehow... God would direct his heart because God puts those in, in authority over us and we're called as a church to pray for them. But something's going to happen Tuesday that's never happened before in this country. Amazing. Amazing. Well, that's what happened in Christ's time. They were looking at some of the things he did, his powers over the demonic world. They said, wow, we've never seen anything like this, ever. And even his judgment on something as simple as a fig tree, when he came upon it in Matthew 21, 19, he cursed the fig tree and it withered immediately. Talk about judgment. Some of you kids are afraid of the judgment of your parents, man. Think of that kind of judgment. I mean, think about it. You know, if mom could say, hey, you know what? I don't have to wait for dad to come home because his judgment, man, he can, he can judge you sitting in his chair at work. You know, boom, you're judged. Consequences, pay, wow. That'd be incredible. That's how Christ was. And it says 
In verse 20, 21, Matthew, it says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled. See, everybody's blown away by this guy. Even his composure was beyond all that of others. He stood silent before Pilate, a man who had the power to take his life. I don't know about you, but if I was standing before somebody and they were going to take my life and they said, do you want to say anything? (laughs) I think I could probably think of something to say. I'd try to talk him out of it. I'd say something. He showed no fear. He gave no defense. Matthew 27, 14 says, He answered him never a word, in his so much that the governor marveled greatly. He was blown away. He stepped back and said, Wow, this guy's incredible. Even his teaching... John 7, 14. His teaching was so far beyond any other teacher. Just, it was at a different level. John 7, 15, it says, The Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know the letters having never learned? Where does he get this wisdom? Where does he get this knowledge? How is he able to teach this way? And as a boy of 12, the teachers in the temple in Luke 2.47 were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I mean, people like this don't come along every day. There was something about Christ that just stood out. And also we see his independence. We see that he was a man who was willing to stand up and be independent from their legal religious system And when the Jews saw that, they just couldn't, that just kind of made their buttons, it pushed their buttons. They couldn't comprehend that. How dare you, was their attitude. In Luke 11, 38, it records that when Jesus accepted an invitation to eat with a Pharisee, his host, here's what he said. It says he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. What did he do? He he went on and he defined their meaninglessness of the ceremonies that they go through. Now, kids, that's not a verse to pull out and say, oh, and see, Jesus didn't wash before dinner, so why do I have to? That's not not, not really what he was talking about. He was talking about a legalistic mindset. And he dealt with it. And we also see his his tender condescension. It, it, It shocked many people in Jesus' day. He conversed with a lot of different people, but even a, a Samaritan harlot. Are you kidding me? This is supposed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the the, the deity in flesh, and he's going to talk to a Samaritan harlot? What kind of man is this? In John 4, 27, it says, And upon this came his disciples, him talking, and they marveled that he talked with the woman. See, people clearly saw that everything about Jesus was astounding. It was marvelous. It was humanly inexplicable. It was just something you just step back and go, wow, I just can't believe this guy. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. I just want you to look at this one verse. After all of what Christ did. Is it any wonder that this is what his response was? 
Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Speaking of Christ, it says, And he marveled because of their what? Unbelief. See, they're all marveling about him, about his teaching, about his love, about all these things we talked about. I mean, they're just blown away. But in the end, he sits back and he goes, Man, what do I got to do for you to believe? He marveled at their unbelief. How could people be so exposed to the truth, so exposed to such a vast number of convincing credentials and miracles and and just the life of the Son of God and yet still walk away with rejection in their heart? How can that happen? How can that take place? He questioned himself. Well, there's a couple reasons. And it's still true today. Why do people reject Christ? Why do people not want to just flock to Him? I mean, He's a forgiving, loving Savior. Well, first of all, it's because they have an overt, willful love of sin. That's the first thing. They love sin. They love their sin. In John 3.19, it says, Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. See, people don't want to come out into the light of righteousness because they love the darkness of sin. I mean, don't sit there for a second and think that sin's not fun. That sin doesn't have some kind of reward to your flesh. It does. See, that's the lie of Satan. And they don't want to hear that. They don't want to come into the light of righteousness because it's going to expose their sinful deeds. It's going to expose their sin. And they just love their sin too much. That's why they deny all the evidence that Christ put forth. And not only do they deny it, they run the other way. I mean, people like this, they're not going to come to church. They're just like, no, God doesn't exist. Don't even go there with me. They don't want to even deal with it. And it's because of their sin. It's because of their willful disobedience before a holy God. See, today in our society, somehow we've redefined everything. So, sin is not called sin anymore. You know, we call it a mistake. We call it an axe. We call it a lot of different things. We don't call it sin. Killing an unborn child, well, you know, it's unborn. It's not really literally born yet, so that doesn't count somehow in our society today. Somebody's getting a little up in age and a little senile maybe. That's okay to unplug them and just let them kind of die off. They're just kind of sucking the resources out of our society anyway. Try that with an injured dog or an injured cat in our society. They'll put you in prison. You laugh. They'll put you in prison. See, everything's upside down. Everything's gone cattywampus on us, and we're looking at it going, wow, what do we do? It's because of people's willful desire to sin and love of sin. 
They want to hide in the darkness because they don't want to come to the light because that will expose them. It will show them for who they are. Well, there's a second group of people that Christ deals with. And the second group is it's not overt. Matter of fact, they don't run away from Jesus. They run to him, which is kind of interesting. They're attracted to Jesus because of his personality, his charisma, his power. Um, call them the thrill seekers, if you will. They want to get in on a piece of the action. <laughs> they don't want to make the commitment, but they, they want to kind of be within earshot and see what's going on in the ministry of Christ. And the church has plenty of these people too, unfortunately. They may claim to be born again. They may claim to be followers of Christ. But you know what? They're just as lost and on their way to hell is the ones who are running away from Christ. Because of the simple fact that they're not coming with a sincere heart. They'll come by church and pop in, poke their head in the door. Hey, what's going on? Oh, okay. (laughs) They just want to know enough. But a whole out commitment, there's no way. I want to tell you this morning in love that, you know what? There is no other commitment that Christ will accept other than a full, all out commitment. You can't come to Christ with half a heart. You can, if you want but he's going to reject it. He's going to reject it. It's either all or nothing. We don't hear that too often today. I mean, we don't even hear that when, when someone comes to Christ, when they say, oh, I found Jesus, I got saved, I, whatever they, what terminology they use. And we're real quick to throw them in some discipleship program and kind of indoctrinate them in the way of Christianity. Sometimes I think we ought to maybe just wait a little bit and say, you know what? You say you've come to Christ? Okay, we'll see. Well, don't you have to give them assurance? No. What what good is assurance from me going to do them? Do you think assurance from me or from anyone else is going to give them heaven? Why would I want to assure anyone of their salvation? I think that that God has said in His Word that when we come to Christ, when we're broken in our spirit and we cry out to Him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't have anywhere else to go. And He saves us. And it's millisecond. The very Holy Spirit of God resides within you if it's a a sincere conversion. And it's just my belief that, you know what, I think that the Holy Spirit could probably do a little better job than me of affirming somebody's salvation or assuring them of their salvation. See, the, the church is full of people who, well, they're, they're doubting this, they're doubting that. And what's the church doing? Oh, don't doubt. That's, it's not good to doubt. The Bible says quite the opposite. It really does. 
It says, be sure that you're in the faith. You better make sure. Persevere. I mean, it, it uses terms like that that require effort. See, so many people want their Christianity on a silver platter and just, oh, well, you were born a Christian and you were raised in a Christian family and somehow you're just miraculously... No, that's not the case. It doesn't work that way. We have to stop and get back to what Jesus truly said. How do you truly acquire eternal life? Ever You have to come to Him with a broken spirit, with a broken heart. You have to be willing to cry out to him and say, God, you know what? There's there's nothing in my life, nothing, not a Zippo, zero, that is worth anything. That's the kind of brokenness that he wants. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter anything about you. It's, It's that kind of a heart that God will save. This morning... We also want to look at the revelation of Christ. And he starts in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 8. We okay? Everybody all right? Still awake? All right. Matthew chapter 8. We're just making sure. Matthew chapter 8. Let's read verse 16. I think I did a, a wise thing in splitting this message in half, right? You okay with that? Okay, good. All right. Verse, eight, verse 16 says, When Jesus had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. When evening was come, it says. Well, basically, this probably took place on the Sabbath, as we talked about before. And the Sabbath had come to a close. See, in the Jewish mindset, on the Sabbath, you can't do a whole lot. You can't do pretty much anything. As a matter of fact, they even uh, complained to Jesus that he healed on the Sabbath, and that's a no-no. And he confronted them about their, their legalistic attitude toward it, but the religious of that day took the Sabbath off. It says, when it came to a close, that people came to Jesus with the sick and the demon-possessed, and he healed all of them. That's just mind-blowing to me, that he healed all of them. There wasn't one that they brought that he said, oh, yes, that's maybe a little too tough there, you know. Yeah, have him go in the back of the line and, and we'll close the service before he makes his way back up. No, it says that he healed them all. See, you, and it was always that way in the ministry of Christ. You didn't have to search long and hard to find a miracle, a legitimate miracle, because Jesus performed thousands of them. On a daily basis. When the diseases were spiritual, as in the case of demon possession, or whether they were physical, Jesus healed them all. He healed those who came to Him regardless of their faith. So many times we hear today, well, brother, you just don't have the faith it takes to get healed. Jesus wasn't concerned about their faith. He healed them anyway. And he was giving evidence of his deity, of his messiahship. He was saying, look at who I am. Look at what I'm doing. Nobody can do this. I'm doing it. And there's a reason why I'm doing it. I'm trying to show you who I am. His acts of healing were part of his ongoing ministry. In Matthew 12, verse 15, it says, Great multitudes followed him 
and he healed them all. In Matthew 14, 14, it says, Jesus went forth and he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion towards them and he healed their sick. Unqualified, unlimited healing. There was no line to get into. There was no fear that maybe if you, you, know, you wouldn't make it or somehow the healing power would run out or the anointing would leave them as so many of these phony teachers and, and healers you have today are saying. In Luke 5.17, it says, It came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, there was a Pharisee and teachers of the law sitting by who were come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. And it says, And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal them. So they saw the healing power. In Luke chapter 9, it also says in verse 6, And they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. As we said before, Jesus basically banished disease from the areas he visited during his day. Now, if someone came to our town and they had that healing capacity, do you think they would attract a crowd? I mean, even the phony healers that we see on TV, they attract crowds and they're not even real. I mean, the people are real, but they're... they're all the stuff they're trying to do is not. A lot of those places, people go away just as sick as they came, as they, they were when they came in the door. And yet somehow, whether it's psychosomatic or with hypnotism, whatever, these people get up there and jump on the stage, and, oh, look, I'm healed. And they leave, and then they try to find another faith healer because their sickness is still there. Why would Jesus heal so many people? Just unprecedented healing. Why would he do that? Well, some say it was because he had compassion on them. That's true. That would be right. He had compassion on, on people. We read that. He knew they were the result of Sin reigning in the world, that being death and disease. He knew that. He despised that. And so he had compassion on people that were touched with physical and spiritual ailments. But he also healed people to give them a glimpse of his kingdom. He healed people so that they could see what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God. I mean, do you know what will happen when Christ comes and sets up his eternal kingdom, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, if you want to turn over there, it tells us. It basically tells us in a nutshell, there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness. Can I hear an amen? All right. That's all the sick people. Now, so he healed out of compassion. He healed to give him a preview of the eternal kingdom, but he also healed for another reason. He healed to kind of bring to a fruition, a consummation, a prophecy. And that's what we see in verse 17. It says in verse 17, He healed all those who were sick, and then it says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Okay. Saying He Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The Old Testament predicted Many things about the Son of God. Many things about the Messiah. Many things about the Savior of the world. The Lamb of God who would take away sin. 
And Jesus just systematically through his ministry, through his life, he shows him to be, shows himself to be the very fulfillment of all those prophecies. Among many of those prophecies is Isaiah 53. You can turn over there if you want. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. It states that the Messiah would bear our griefs and our sorrows and bring healing. See, in his earthly ministry, Jesus dealt with disease. He dealt with sickness. And what he was doing is he was giving people a taste of how his kingdom would be. He did it out of compassion. And he wanted to show them, you know what? There's going to come a day when we're going to be free from sickness, from death, and from sin. And so... In verse 17, when it says he took, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, that's taken right out of Isaiah 53. It's probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible because it predicts the substitutionary death of our Lord. Look at verses 4 to 6. I'll just read them and you can follow along. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, has, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his street, stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, it's important to understand here when it says, with his stripes we are healed. He's not referring specifically to physical healing. He's not. But he's referring to spiritual healing, the healing of the disease of sin. Now with that being said, you have to understand that when sin is healed, sickness is indirectly healed as well. Because it's a result of sin. So some people ask the question, the title of our message, is there healing in the atonement? The answer is yes, there is. There's healing in the atonement. But the physical aspect of that healing is not really for now. It's for later. It's for future. Stay with me on this. See, when Jesus died on the cross, did he take away our sin? Yes. Let me ask you, as Christians, do you still have our trouble with sin? Yes. See, Jesus dealt with our sin, but the fulfillment of that is yet future in its fullest sense. Let me ask you, when he died on the cross, did he destroy the enemy of death? Yes. Do Christians die? Yes. The fulfillment is still yet future. When Christ died on the cross, did he deal with disease? Yes. Do we still get sick? Unfortunately, yes. See, that's also future. So there's healing in the atonement, just as there's deliverance from death and the full restoration of the believer before God in the atonement. But we still wait for that day. 
It's important to understand because there's a lot of rogue theologies out there that are teaching just the opposite. People who say that Christians should never be sick. Why? Well, there's healing in the atonement. And they quote these verses. Well, if you believe that, you're going to have to be forcibly, logically, you're going to have to conclude that a Christian should never sin. Or a Christian should never die. Just as well as they should never sick. Be sick if that's what your theology wants to believe. It's no more correct to, correct to teach that Christians should be free from illness and sickness any more than it is to say that a Christian should be free from sin and death. Christ died primarily for our sins, not our sicknesses. That's not what the health, wealth, prosperity people teach. The gospel is good news about forgiveness. It's not good news about health. Christ was made sin. He wasn't made disease. Christ took away our sin, not our sickness. See, we should never interpret Isaiah 53 any differently than to say that its primary meaning means that Jesus came and died to heal us from sin. That's what he was talking about. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 reinforces the fact when he says, who is who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. And then he says, by whose stripes you are healed. Peter's talking about spiritual healing from sin. It's only here in Matthew that we have this added physical dimension of the healing, but it's yet future. So there's healing, there's wholeness in the atonement, but only as it comes to us in the fullness of salvation. When our bodies are glorified in the eternal kingdom, and someday that's going to happen and we're going to take, he's going to take away all of our sickness. But the healing that took place during his earthly ministry, see, it was only a foretaste. It was only just a glimpse of what was going to be spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus bore our sickness because he sympathetically felt our pain. And I don't mean that in a Bill Clinton sense of, I feel your pain kind of a thing. You have to understand, Jesus Christ was omniscient. Christ knew what was in the heart of man. He could read your mind. Remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus without even asking the question. He had in his, his, uh, his head, Jesus was able to give him an answer. Nicodemus asked, one th- Nicodemus asked one thing, Jesus answered what he really wanted to be answered. He did that often because he knew what was in the heart of man. John chapter 2 verses 24 and 25 tell us that. He was omniscient. Christ knows everything that you've ever felt, thought, or experienced. And with that, he can fully understand every pain you feel. See, that's why Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that we have a sympathetic high priest. And it says, who touched with the, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He bore our sickness. And in a way, he sympathetically feels the pain that we feel. Over and over again, you see in the Gospels that he was moved with compassion. That word compassion literally means to suffer with. To suffer right alongside. 
Jesus didn't contract our diseases when He was here on earth, but He fully felt our pain. He bore our infirmities. Remember, we talked about Him standing at the graveside of Lazarus and Him weeping. The Bible says that He groaned in His spirit. He was so distraught. He was so upset. And we see Jesus weeping and groaning at the the graveside of His friend. And logic says, well, yeah, you know, if somebody dies, you're going to cry, right? What was He crying about? What was He weeping about? Let me tell you, beloved, it wasn't because Lazarus was dead. That had nothing to do with it. Because he was about ready to call him out of the grave. I don't know about you, but if I went to a funeral and I had the ability to raise that person from the dead, I don't think I'm going to go up to the casket and sit there and cry for 15 minutes and then say, oh yeah, by the way, be raised. Why would you do that? You wouldn't do that. That'd be silly. See, he was groaning, he was weeping at the graveside of his friend Lazarus because whenever he saw sickness, whenever he saw death, he anticipated the bitter reality of Calvary. He knew that the evil of sin caused all that pain, all that sickness, all that sorrow. And his life was lived in the shadow of the cross. And every time he saw sickness, every time he saw death, he never ever saw it without feeling the pain of sin that he came to die for. Jesus bore our sickness and that when he went to the cross, he dealt with sin in such a devastating way that he guaranteed that disease would ultimately be destroyed. And see, he's healing these people here because he's given them just a little glimpse, just a little picture of what's to come. And even though there was many Pharisees who hated Jesus with a passion because they loved their sin, they loved darkness rather than light, there were others who were attracted to him because of all his miracles. And they just kind of, boy, just the magnetism of his personality attracted them. Next week we're going to look at three men who fall into that category of thrill seekers. And in each case, you can read them during Luke 9 and Two of them are in Matthew 8. In each case, something. There was some barrier that when they came to Christ, it caused Christ to turn to them and basically reject them flat out. That's hard for us to understand. But that's exactly what the Bible says. And you say, well, doesn't Jesus say that you come unto him, he'll no wise cast you out. He does say that. But if you read a little further, it kind of covers how you need to come to him. I believe without a doubt in my mind that there's people sitting here this morning who somehow think in their mind they came to the Savior. Somehow they walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, they did something. And it's unfortunate because you know what? Just because you did that, that does not make you a Christian. That's not what the Bible says. 
If you have made a commitment like that and you haven't seen your life transformed, the Bible describes the Christian experience as being passed from darkness into light. From the power of Satan into the the power of God. I mean, you can't get further apart. And so many times people will make a commitment. And then we'll sit around the cooler and say, well, do you think they're saved? Well, I don't know. They've got a lot of work to do yet. What? Either God saves you completely holy or it hasn't happened. We don't have to work at it. I want to ask you this morning, are you trusting in that kind of a Savior? Are you trusting in a Savior that loves you, that died for you, that spread His arms open wide on the cross and died, gave up His life? Holy for you and for your sin. Are you willing to look at that and say, you know what? I haven't been broken over my sin. I don't know what it means to be broken over my sin. But you know what? I need to be. Yeah, I made a commitment several years ago, but you know what? I, there's no consistency in my Christian life. There's nothing there. I don't, I don't sense the power of God. I read the Bible. It's kind of like reading a textbook. I, there's just nothing there. Don't walk out of here without crying out to God. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me your way, Father. We pray this morning, Lord, as we bow our hearts, we bow our heads, that you would do your work in the hearts of your people. Lord, only you can do that. That work isn't done by calling them down an aisle or having them pray a prayer. Lord, it's only done when your spirit touches their heart It makes their cold, stony heart that of flesh and renews them, transforms them. See, Jesus isn't something that we add to our lives, beloved. It's something that we are totally, wholly sold out for. And if we're not, then we're not saved. I know that sounds harsh. I know that flies in the face of everything that we see all around us today as put out there as the gospel. But I don't know, my Bible says few are there that find it. That the way is narrow. And I'm thoroughly convinced that the broad way to hell leads under many pulpits and in many churches. Because people are able to feel comfortable about their sin. They're able to feel comfortable about God not doing anything in their life. I'm just in a dry spell. I'm in a valley. We use all sorts of things to describe it. That's not the Christian life as God calls us to live it. I pray that you would cry out to him. Cry out to the Savior. He loves you. He died for you. He wants to transform you. Pray that you would just allow believers here this morning as well, Lord, to be encouraged in our faith. Lord, I know this is maybe a hard message to hear. It's a hard message to preach. It preaches to me first and foremost. And, and Lord, we ask that you would continue to do your work in and through your people. Lord, as much as the world and the enemy presses in around us, I pray that we would remember that we have a mighty fortress who is our God. Nothing can come against you. We thank you for that. Thank you for our faith. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.